Hey everyone, my name is Nate, and it's a joy to be here. Uh, I get the joy of serving here at PC3. And I want to start us off tonight with a little experience that changed the way that I viewed my life. It actually changed the way that I lived. So back in eighth grade, I was uh, a student manager for the wrestling team. I had just started wrestling like the year prior, and from when I was in like kindergarten, I did basketball. So in high school, you have to... I mean, it's for every school, but our school only had wrestling and basketball for the, for the winter sports. But I had to choose if I should play basketball in high school or if I should wrestle in high school, right? So I was a student manager, so I got invited to go to state wrestling uh, that, that year. <clears throat> and so basically, as I was, uh, as I was going, I, it's, it's a three-day tournament. It's at CHI Health Center in here in Omaha, downtown, like, Thousands of people go every year, and it's, it's a big event, right? So it's the, the semifinals and heartbreaks round, the, the second night of the weekend. And I'm there just, just chilling. This, this semifinals round is where the heartbreaks is where if you lose, you're literally out of the tournament. If you win, you place in the tournament. And if you're in the semis, if you win, you're in the finals the next day. So it's a super intense night. So basically, they play this video over the, the giant screen, and it's got, like, hype music behind it. It's, it's, like, to pump you up, right? And I watched that video, and I was sold. I was like, all right. I told myself right then, I'm doing wrestling, and I'm going to be here next year for wrestling. Like, I, I want to do this, right? That experience changed not only that I was going to, not only made me decide that I was going to do wrestling in high school, but I literally convinced my parents the next, like, few months to let me go to another town because they had a better wrestling program so I could get trained better. Like, it changed everything. So, in that, I saw how amazing that tournament was, and I was like, it changed the way that I lived. It changed the way that I viewed life. I was all in for wrestling, right? Well, PC3, did you know that God has done something that should change our lives? Did you know that when He reveals His glory to His people, Everything should change. If you've been saved by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it should absolutely change the way that you live and view your life. This sermon is titled, The Gospel Gives Us an Eternal Perspective, because my hope for us tonight is that we would see how amazing the gospel is and that it would lead us to living a life not fixed on the world, but fixed on Christ and his kingdom. That we would recognize if we are in Christ, we have everything we need. So therefore, we can give up everything for Jesus. Peter communicates this really in three parts. So for you note takers, our outline is going to be the gospel purifies us, the gospel preserves us, and this world will perish. But before we dig into the text, I I just want to explain the vision for PC3 over the next few weeks. We're going to start, this last week, if you were paying attention, Jake finished Galatians, right? Finished the series. And this week, we're starting a series called All for Jesus. It's really a series about missions and the mission of God. <clears throat> and we're going to end with a panel with someone, some people from uh, Providence Church who are mission-minded and some missionaries that have actually gone overseas. <clears throat> um, so tonight, we're going to be at the end of chapter one of First Peter Uh, So you guys can flip there, and as you do, I just want to give us a little important context for the night, Uh, for this mess, for the, for this, because we're diving into the 
letter, and we need some context. So Peter, who was one of Jesus' close disciples, he's writing this letter to elect exiles, is what it says. It literally just means that they're God's chosen people, and they've trusted in Jesus, so they are Christians. These Christians are being persecuted. They're scattered in the province of Asia Minor, and they're being persecuted by Romans and Greeks around them. So these people are suffering, and Peter writes this letter to remind them of the hope that they have in Christ. That even though they are suffering persecution, they can rest in the fact that they're going to be with God in heaven forever because of what Jesus has done. So with that context, uh, let's read 1 Peter 1, 22. And we're going to see that the gospel purifies us. First, let me just pray for us. Father, uh, we come before you and we're just so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the gospel, Lord, and I pray that you would, you would be glorified tonight. God, that you would pierce our hearts through your word. Give us a, a vision for um, what you want to do with our lives. God, reveal your glory tonight to everybody in here. Humble us, God. Would you be exalted in this? And um, yeah, pray that you would... You'd be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Okay, 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So this is the gospel purifies us. Two questions are raised in this, and I'm going to read that verse. And these are actually going to be two little sub-points of this, of this point. The questions are, why do our souls need to be purified? And the second question is, are our souls purified by our obedience? So let's take these one at a time. So why do our souls need to be purified? Well, there was a time when people actually did not need to be purified, and that was in the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve, they were just created, and they were perfect. They were living in perfect communion with God. And when they were deceived by the serpent, they, they did the very thing that God commanded them not to do. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing that, sin entered the world. They were cast out of the garden, and they're separated from God. So now, when we're born, we're actually separated from God. We're born into sin. Everything we do is tainted by sin. Isaiah, a prophet who lived 700 years before Jesus came into the world, he wrote, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the righteous things that we do, God looks at them and he just sees filth. We simply cannot please him in and of ourselves. Because God is holy, We need to be purified in order to be in his presence. We need our sins to be washed away. Imagine you're at a coffee shop, right, and you you get a vanilla latte. Okay, that's what I always get. You get a vanilla latte, the barista makes it, she gives it, he or she gives it to you, and right when you're about to pay for it, you're about to grab your drink, and a sewer pipe leaks a, a drop of sewer water into your latte. You're going to say, what? That is disgusting. And who the heck put that pipe there, right? But you're going to hand that back to the the barista and say, no, I want a new one. I'm not going to drink that, right? So imagine the barista just says, oh, well, here, let 
let me fix that for you. She grabs, she, he or she grabs some honey, grabs some, some more vanilla, some milk, pours it in, and gives it back to you. You're going to look at her and be like, no way, I'm not drinking that. You, the first thought, you literally saw sewer water contaminate the drink. You have this standard, which I hope all of us would have this standard, that we would not drink a latte with, with sewer water in it, right? Well, this is what it's like with God. We are tainted with sin, and therefore we can't add anything to make us good. No matter how many things we try and do, God still sees our sin and guilt, so we need to be purified. But that verse in Isaiah and that analogy with the latte shows that we can't do things to make ourselves right with God. So is that a contradiction of what Peter says when he says, you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth? Are our souls purified by our obedience? No. I hope we would all say a resounding no after the whole Galatians series. If you, if you go back like 20 verses to verse 2, we find out what or actually who this truth is. I'm going to read 1 Peter 1 verse 2. It says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Zoom into the middle of that verse and it says, Obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the truth, and the sprinkling of his blood is what cleanses us. But even still, knowing that Jesus is the truth, there's still people that are going to say, well, yeah, Jesus is the truth. He, did, he died on the cross to cleanse us of our sin. But the way we receive that is by doing good things. That is not what Peter is teaching here. That's not what the Bible teaches. PC3, we have to get this. This is essential. This is a primary issue. Jesus actually explains this in John 6. John 6, verse 28 and 29. He says, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus tells them that, they can, that the way that they can be perfectly obedient is by trusting in him and his work, not by trusting in their own work. So we can clearly see that this first step of obedience to the truth that Peter's talking about is actually placing their trust in Jesus. Sinners are purified by placing their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Think about that latte that has the sewer water mixed into it. Imagine, imagine the barista dumps the latte out into a purification system and it completely takes every drop out of the, of, the, the latte, of the sewer water out of the latte. That's what God does to us when we trust in him. We're completely washed by his blood when we trust in him. PC3, this is good news. And this is, what, this is why Peter reminds these suffering Christians this. In the second part of this verse, he gives the application for this truth, and that's to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He first reminds them of the love they have been shown by God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus, and then he tells them to love. Why? Because they have been purified of their sin by trust in Christ, they can now love as God has loved them. 
we learn in the next verses that these people are born again. These are genuine Christians. And Jesus said that people will know, who, know his disciples by their love. Your love for others flows out of the overflow of God's love for you. So if you don't know God's love in Christ, then you cannot love others, especially Christians. Peter loves these fellow Christians by preaching the gospel to them. The gospel's not just for unbelievers. We need to realize that we never graduate from the gospel. I need to be reminded of the gospel every single day because I'm so quick to forget it. I love nothing more than to see my brother or sister in Christ be so encouraged by the gospel or so fired up for something they read in the Bible that they have to share it with me. It genuinely encourages me so much and gives me a deeper love for God's word. So why don't we do this? Especially when your brother or sister in Christ comes to you with shame and guilt because they've fallen into sin, we need to love them in that moment. And remind them of the gospel. Remind them that Jesus finished his work on the cross and they can rest in him. We can do this, remind them that, that Jesus is, his work is finished because the gospel preserves us. That's going to be our next point. The gospel preserves us. It reads, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable Through the living and abiding word of God. That's verse 23. This term born again is the doctrine of regeneration. Where the Holy Spirit comes and makes the sinner spiritually alive. It literally means regenesis or restart. Literally new life. They were spiritually dead but now they are spiritually alive. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit using the word of God to bring the broken sinner to a knowledge of their need for Christ and the grace that he gives through his life, death, and resurrection. This is an important doctrine for us to understand 100%. But I think the emphasis of this verse is actually more on the fact that this new seed in them will not perish. He reminds them that they are being kept in God's hand. He's comforting these exiles as they're suffering to rest in the fact that they have been born again and that God will keep them. They are secure in Christ. This past weekend, I went to my grandpa's place on the Platte River, right? Me, my brother, my dad, my grandpa. We go out there because we have a cabin and it's, it's heated by a wood stove. It's how all houses used to be heated. And most of us don't know that. But you actually need real wood to heat the house in the wood stove, right? So, Every year, we have to go out there and replenish the stack of wood that we burned over the year. So this past weekend, we went out and cut some trees down, chopped it all up, used the log splitter, got it all, and replenished this stack of wood. Well, imagine if my grandpa would hire some, some guys, right, to come out every single day and chop a tree down and cut it all up and replenish the stack of wood as we were using it. Right, So they would, as much as we would take, they would put fresh wood back on that pile so that it doesn't perish. That right there, we would not be, tr- we would not be afraid if, we would not be afraid that, that we would not have any wood, right? Because we trust that these guys we hired are cutting trees down every day and replenishing it. We could trust that they're going to do their job. 
Well, just as the stack of wood is being kept from perishing every day, the born-again person is being preserved in the fold of God every day because God is making sure that they do not perish. We can trust that God, is, is his word is true, and he is going to keep his people. Jesus teaches this doctrine in John 10, 28, as he speaks about his sheep or his people. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. PC3, if your trust is in the Lord Jesus for your salvation, you are in God's hand. He is keeping you secure, and the work that he started in you will come to completion one day. This is great news. We can have full assurance of our salvation, not because we have been super great at killing sin or being the best evangelist, but because we have a faithful Savior who laid down his life on our behalf. Would you rest in that? Know that you're going to spend eternity with Jesus. You cannot sin your way out of God's hand. He is not going to let you perish. Of course, there should be victory over sin in your life after you trust in Jesus, but that is not what saves you. Christ saves you, and his work is what you are defined by. This should give us so much peace about death because we know where we're going. But it should also propel us towards people who don't have peace about death. People that are in other religions or people that are not religious at all. All other religions teach that if you do enough good, you can maybe go to heaven. But there's no assurance in that at all. And if someone says that they do have assurance in another religion... They're trusting in their own work when in reality they are sinful. Even if you could, sin, you could not sin the rest of your life, you still have the guilt and shame and all the sin that you committed before. You need to be cleansed, right? So knowing that, knowing that all other religions have no assurance, obviously it's not the gospel, it's not Jesus, it's not the true Jesus, right? That should Give us a burden for people around us. We need to realize that the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, is the best news ever and that we should preach it to people. We need to be preaching this message. Maybe you're here and you know that, that you, you should be loving others. You should be preaching the gospel to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You should be preaching the gospel to people that don't know him. But you just have a lack of urgency. Well, Peter is going to show us that this is an urgent matter, that these things should not be in the back of our minds, but they should be in the forefront of our whole entire life. The gospel purifies us and the gospel preserves us. So now Peter is going to show us that this is urgent because this world will perish. We're going to see in these next, next verses this very idea. This world will perish. I need to get a thing on this Bible. <laughs> For all flesh, this is verses 24 and 25. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This poem-like phrase has quotation marks around it, so we need to instantly see that and know that it's taken from somewhere else in the Old Testament. This text is actually taken from Isaiah 40, where Isaiah 
is also comforting God's people as they're, uh, they're also suffering. They're in exile. So he's, he's reminding them that human life is temporary, but that God's word and his truth is eternal. So why is it good to remind suffering Christians that this world and all humans are fading away? Because it reminds them that this place is not their home. Their home is with God in heaven. And it helps them remember that even in suffering, they know that this is the worst that it's ever going to get. That they have eternal life with God to look forward to. And that is where their minds should be. Peter uses this because no matter how beautiful the grass and the flower is, it is going to fade away. But what will not fade away is God's word. The same word of God that Isaiah was reminding the exiles of is what was preached to the exiles that Peter is talking to. God's word's been sustained for thousands of years and it will never fade away. He is the only one that these people can trust when it when everything around them is failing. The thing that will inevitably happen here for every single person in here is we're going to die. Death is, is, is the reality, right, for all of us. So these verses even remind the exiles that they can't even trust their own health and well-being. Well, what is Peter contrasting here? What does he want us to know? He tells us that we will live eternally with God in heaven and reminds us that this life is going to be short, and it will end with death. So why does he do this? Because it helps them remember that their hope is not in the comfort of this world. PC3, this raises a big question for us. What is your life? I'm not asking your city group leader, your parents, your friends, your disciples, what they think about what your life is. I'm asking you directly, what is your life? Is it a relationship? Is it sports? Is it how many followers you have on Instagram or how many likes that you get? Is it chasing the American dream? What is it? The Apostle James asks this very question, and then he goes on to say that life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I don't know if you've ever been on the road when a motorcycle just like drives past you going double your speed on the highway or the interstate, right? You don't even have the time to look at the motorcycle, see the model or see what kind it is, see their license plate or even wave at the guy. They just, they're there and then they're gone, right? Well, that is what this life is. It's literally here and then it's gone in an instant. Solomon, the wisest man on earth in his day, said that there is, a time to be, there is a time to be born and a time to die. He doesn't even mention a time to live because he realizes that this life is so short and so fleeting. If we've been saved by Jesus, why would we still live like we are of this world? If you're in Christ, you are not of this world anymore. You are the Lord's and your home is in heaven. Would we live like this? Would we be eternal, would we be heaven-minded, have an eternal mindset? Maybe believe this in your mind, right? But when there's a chance to preach the gospel to somebody, you, you think and you say, well, I don't want to ruin that relationship. Well, in reality, what you're saying there is, 
I don't actually love this person enough to tell them that they're on a path to hell and that I have the cure. What is more important there, friends? I know that you guys wouldn't actually say that out loud, but that is in a sense of what you're saying. Do you actually believe that Jesus is the truth and the cure for our sin? It's a reality that we talk about the things that are are in our heart. Jesus literally says this in Matthew 15. He says, what comes out of your mouth is what proceeds from the heart. So is Christ truly in your heart? Because if he is, if he is your Lord, you will talk about him. You will want others to know him and worship him. If God asked you right now to go overseas and preach the gospel to an unreached people group, would you go? Like if you literally heard God's voice audibly, you knew it was him, and he he told you to go overseas and preach the gospel to to an unreached people group, would you go? Is your life controlled by Christ? Does, does, that, does what he say actually dictate what you do? He has purified us from our sin and given us full assurance of our salvation. So would that cause us to live all of our life for him right now because this world is perishing? Christian, that's why you can't live just giving 95% of your life to Jesus. We need to live giving Jesus 100% of our life because he deserves it. To the non-Christians in the room, you've just been faced with the truth of the gospel, the good news that God has made a way to save sinful, wretched people. So what are you going to do with that? This is the most important thing that you could hear in in this short life. The call for you is to repent, to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Trust him for your salvation. Trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. He is the only way that you can be made right with a holy God. Because ultimately, right now, you are under God's judgment. You're on a path to destruction. But there is true hope in Christ. There's true hope in Jesus. This life is short, but I can tell you 1,000% that what your heart is actually searching for can only be found in Jesus. He is the answer. So if you have any questions tonight, if you're wrestling with this idea, would you talk to somebody? Would you, would you ask somebody here? People want to, to help you wrestle with this. I want to end with a few verses from an old hymn called All for Jesus. Seemed pretty fitting. And it's encouraged me a ton. This is all for Jesus, all for Jesus. All my being's ransomed powers. All my thoughts and words and doings. All my days and all my hours. Since my eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all beside so enchained my spirit's vision, looking at the crucified. Oh, what wonder, how amazing. Jesus, glorious King of kings, deigns to call me his beloved, lets me rest beneath his wings. Would you pray with me?